0: Good morning, church. Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Kristen. We are so glad you're here this morning. Um, I'm on staff here at the Oaks, um, and I'm excited to share two things we have upcoming with you. First up is our women's gathering, um, our first women's gathering of the fall happening next Monday, August 16th at 730. It's at Carly's house, and we'll be sending out more information Um, about the location and all that to come. Um, But we want this place each month to be a place that you feel really excited to come to, that's a safe place for you to come to. Um, But we also have a purpose. We are daughters of the Lord. Um, And we want to have a a vision of growing as disciples um, and living out what does that look like in our church um, to equip women um, in our church. And so um, how do we become women of the Lord um, who love our families and our neighbors um, and seek to bring renewal to our city and our neighborhoods. And so we hope you can gather with us on the 16th. Um, if you don't know anyone, you know me now. Um, I'll be at the Connect table. We can introduce, I can introduce myself and get to know you a little bit. Um, but if you're hesitant to come because you you're not sure who will be there, please come. Um, we will be expecting you, um, and there will be a seat for you. And so um, we would love to see you there. Um, our hope is to gather on a monthly basis. So it's going to be the third. Monday of every month. So um, at our last um, women's hangout, we said, hey, can we do this for six months? Can we do it for a year? And everybody was like, let's do it for a year. Let's do this. Let's commit to growing and encouraging each other in our discipleship um, and our relationship with the Lord. And so we're excited. So come out to that. Um, Put it on your calendar. Um, Second, we have a lot of big milestones happening this month. um, One of which is back to school. How are we feeling? We excited? Okay. Well, we're excited about that. Um, Students are going back and that's a big milestone. And we want to celebrate God's faithfulness um, in each of our students, our teachers, our families' lives um, as we start the coming year. Um, So on Sunday, August, 29th. Um, It's going to be our back to school celebration and all church picnic. We're pumped. Um, so <laughs> that month, that Sunday, we're going to be really celebrating our students. And that's a whole church affair. We want to um, just love on students and, and teachers that Sunday. And so um, we're going to be inviting kids up and uh, teachers up to pray for them. Um, Pastor Matt has a special mes- message for our students. Um, and then afterwards, we're going to gather outside and we'll have um, a gift for all of our students um, as well as a cookout. So we're going to have hot dogs and chips and prepackaged chips and and um water um but you can also um pack a lunch but we just come and hang out get to know other people from the church um and Yeah, it's gonna be a grand old time. Um, You can be looking out for more information, um, but there's gonna be opportunities to serve. So if you really like grilling hot dogs, we got a place for you. If uh, you are really good at packing bags, we have (laughs) something for you to do. Um, And we also have a huge opportunity to pray specifically over our students. And so you can call up a child and pray over them for their year. And so more information will be coming out soon. Um, If you are worshiping from home or you can't make it that day, we can line up a time for you to pick up your gift. Um, Lastly, on that specific Sunday, we're calling it a family Sunday. Um, One is we want to all be together, but the second part is we want to honor our children's ministry team um, that they're committing to serving once a month. So we're going to invite all the kids in, and our Oaks kids will be closed that Sunday. So we'll be having an all-worship together. So um, lots of things going on this fall, but we are eager to... um, gather with you. So um, we have teachers, we have students in the room and parents. Um, Would you join me in praying for them as we um, start the school year? Father God, we praise you. Um, You're good, you're holy, um, and you love us. We are in awe of your presence, God. We pray specifically for our students, the teachers going back, the parents. Um, we pray for wisdom, God. Um, we just long for um, a life with you and to live out your truth and your word and your gospel in our um, schools and in our homes and in our neighborhoods. And so God, be our vision, um, our peace, um, and our stronghold, God. We um, be with um, the health of our students and teachers and parents, um, and yeah, just be our vision, God. We love you. We pray for um, Pastor Matt as he brings your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Well, peace be with you. you. It's good to see you. Um, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I've been out of the preaching mode. I preach a lot, and so uh, I've been out of that for a while. Uh, I took the month to um, really just uh, press into my family and press into prayer, and I was also using the month of July to just study, and so I've, you know, I was just using time to prep content for the rest of our summer into the fall. Man, I'm so excited and thankful, and I think we're going to learn a lot. We've got a lot, a lot of really interesting and insightful cool things that we're going to get into over the coming next four months, and I'm so excited to share that with you. So um, if you're interested in hearing more about that, come up to me after the service. I'd be happy to share and spoil some of it for you early. Um, big, big thanks. I want to just take a second, real th- quick, thanks to the people. Like, you know, when I'm out, you know, like preaching and pastoring, sometimes like being on the dance floor and, and, and mixing it up, and then it's good to get out and get into the balcony and look at it all. And distance from the church as a pastor is helpful in that, like, it really does remind me and fuel my love and my sense of imagination for the value and the beauty of the local church. And that happened for me. It's like the distance of it doesn't cause me to go, you know, what? What are we doing? Bye. Um, Which can happen to some people, I think. It didn't happen to me. I was reminded of 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 this community. It's it's grounded in the love of Jesus Christ, and it's it's a beautiful community. Um, It has its flaws of course, but um, I'm thankful to the, the, the people that preached in my place. Um, I'm thankful to just everyone from the kids stuff to the coffee, to the music team. How about the music team? Do you realize the mu- Yeah, right? Because, you know, they, they, they played, I don't know if you remember, but they played during the entire pandemic <laughs> when um, it was wild and crazy, and it just, they've been so faithful. Um, community group leaders, you know, handling the tension of the last year and a half. It's just, it's been wild, all the things. And each place, each person, and the thing that you do and your leadership and the way you serve has its own unique value and place within how the corporate church is, is being held together by Jesus is love. And then it, it encourages and builds into one another. And man, it is also, I could just go on and on about how grateful I am. Um, to watch it, and to participate, just to participate in it. So thank you to all of you uh, for the work that you do. Um, So uh, get your Bible out or or turn your Bible on if you're one of those people who are still in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll finish the book of Ecclesiastes next week, Um, but we're going to look at um, Ecclesiastes. We're going to start in chapter 9, and uh, we'll go, so we'll look at Ecclesiastes 9, starting in verse 13, and then... Uh, going into chapter 10, looking all the way to 15. So turn there. Um, Ecclesiastes is kind of like really like right down the middle of your Bible if you're not familiar with where it's at. It's a wisdom book. It's kind of hard to find because it's a relatively short book. You can follow along on the TV screens as well. I tried to find the best way to insert myself into this because it's, or our reading at least, because it's, it's a very enigmatic section of the book, as you'll see here. In a second, um, if, if you're able, if you're not able, that's okay. Just stand for the reading of God's word. We just do that to physically express that we stand under the authority of God's word. Here's the preacher, the preacher's words, um, who wrote this, this is what he has to say. I, I have also seen uh, this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offense to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. As it were, an error proceeding, proceeding from the ruler. And its folly is set in many high places. And the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the grounds like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and the wound does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness." A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. This is the word of the Lord. Be you can be seated. Uh, it, did that, that passage make sense to you? <laughs> That's how I felt all week reading that passage. That is tough, right? Um, it's, it's a very strange, like you go to the scholars and they're like, good luck preaching it. And it's like, thanks. And so I decided to take time off and then come back and preach this text. Why I didn't give it to one of the other guys is a failure in my leadership. If, um, if you'll notice, here's the thing. Let me help us. I think I can help us. Ready? I think we're going to talk about leadership just in general. Um, I think this passage as enigmatic as it is, if you notice, if you if you kind of circled in your Bible, if you did, if you or you could, like you could say, hey, circle the time every time it says ruler or king, gives an example or a metaphor of rulers, a ruling. And so I think what we're going to look at is leadership here. I, mean, I know that's what we're going to look at, but but I think that this is what the preacher's getting at. Um, he's really talking about the the beauty of wise leadership and the, just the, the destructive nature of foolish leadership. Um, and so um, he comments because on, at the beginning there on like how impressed he is by wise leadership, even a poor guy with no influence or power and a, and a big great king and, and a lot of you know, uh, troops behind him come and, and lay siege to a city, but the poor wise uh, guy can, can, can deliver the city because he's wise, he, even though he's outmatched and outgunned. Um, and he says this in um, 9, verse 16, he says, but I, I say that wisdom is better than might. That's actually, like, in English, we have a very similar saying. Brains is better than brawn, right? Like, that's essentially what he's saying. Um, but here's the thing. Unfortunately, the preacher knows that in our world, just in his world, in that time, just like it is now, our world is broken. It, and it's like, just, we're compromised as people. And, and so, um, even though this is true about wisdom... Even though wisdom is incredibly powerful, foolishness is equally destructive. Like, that's the paradox of it. The sad reality is it doesn't take much foolishness to wreak havoc and bring about destruction and pain. Because uh, he says this, um, this is in, starting in verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, right? Uh, but, he says, one sinner destroys much good. And then he offers this like really weird proverb about getting dead flies in your Chanel. Like, has that ever happened to you? No. He says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. That's like, what? But he kind of explains it. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. He's just saying, don't be surprised that like something really little and small can really outweigh and undo something really big. Like you get a few, apparently for them, they can have a, a vessel with expensive, really good-smelling perfume, and these little flies die inside of it. You don't see them. You don't even know they're there, and they ruin it. Um, so it's our English there equivalent, right? We have another. We ha- we have an English proverb there. One bad apple spoils the whole bunch, which is true, by the way. It's called ethylene gas. It, a really right piece. Of, I studied this. I nerded out for it, on it for like hours. Just like, and mold is the same thing. It, it spreads, it looks for more food, right? So it spreads. Um, and Paul said something like this. The spiritual equivalent is a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. Um, I got stung last month. First week I was off, um, on my time off, I got stung. I, sorry, I got stung twice. Twice I got stung. Which, by the way, happens to me every summer. I can tell you this whole story. Every summer I take July off. You guys know this. What you don't know is the very first week, I'm not making this up, you can ask my wife, the first week for the last three years, I get stung. That's I'm cursed. And you could say, that is the Holy Spirit telling you to stop taking the time off. But I say, and I'll prove it in this sermon, that it's the Lord's way of communicating you're a human being. And I think it was a yellow jacket that stung me. Have, has anyone been stung by a yellow jacket? Awful. Awful. I'm telling you, awful. I'm a, I'm, I'm, despite my um, intimidating size, I am really tough. And I was brought to my knees. Y'all, it stung so bad. And it wasn't done after the initial shock of the pain. My leg, I got stung right here. My entire knee to ankle was this big. You're like, it's called infection. I know. It was really bad. It was hot. <laughs> it was it t- it itched like crazy. It was terrible. Um, I am this big and a yellow jacket is this big. You know, I can kill a yellow jacket very easily. And yet it totally undid me. Like it, it, I was totally done for four days. It was bad. That's what he's saying about foolishness. I think his point is that you better take foolishness very serious, even a little bit in your life. Take it very serious when you don't, there's incredible damage in your family and in your workplace, in your church. Um, There's a really great uh, example in this, in the Bible even, in in terms of leadership, involving, (laughs) ironically, uh, King Solomon's son. You know, we've been... Talk throughout the series about how we, we, we don't really know who wrote this book, um, but we're supposed to receive it like it is uh, Solomon speaking to us, thinking about it through his lens. And so, and there's a, a really famous story of, of King Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Some of you may be familiar with that story, some of you not, but it's a really, really pivotal point in the Bible. You can find it in 1 Kings 12, and, and there's an identical you know, rehashing of it in Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 10. So, so Solomon's, um, his son Rehoboam is taking over. He's getting ready to take over uh, as the next king of Israel. Um, but before so, right, right at the very beginning of this, he is approached by assembly of people fr- from up in the north, like the northern tribes of Israel. And they approach him, they, they have a whole assembly, and they come to him. And this is what they say. This is 1 Kings 12, verse 4. They're like, your father, they're talking about Solomon. They're like, your father, um, now n- notice this language, made our yoke heavy. Now, um, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we'll serve you. Like, we'll be so loyal to you. And Rehoboam goes away at, at, at this moment. He, he, he's like, All right, give me like three days. Let me think this through. And so he goes and he gets some advisors. And he first goes to like the older men um, in, within the kingdom who advised his father. And he goes to those guys and he's like, What do you think I should do about this? These people, this is what they're saying. And, and, and so he gets advice from them. And um, you know, they're like, you need to listen. You need to listen to them. And, and you need to speak kindly to them. Be gentle with them. and lighten up the hard service, the hard taxation, and all the, the loads that you're bearing down on them or you're thinking about bearing down on them. And then he's like, well, maybe I'll go to my, my, my um, school buddies. So he grabs some advisors that are like his age, That he's grown up with. And he grabs them and he's like, What do you guys say about this? Um, And so this is what they say. I'll just read it to you. Um, They say, Thus shall you speak to these people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I'll add to it. I'm gonna make it even worse. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. It's like not good advice. Not good advice. And what's he do? What's he do, right? He takes this advice. This is what he (laughs) reports back. And you know what happens? You might remember what happens. This is the moment. It's a huge moment if you're a Jew. Like this, the kingdom splits, This this little bit right here, this little moment makes the entire kingdom split from the north and the south, becomes Judah and Israel. You know, you've probably read some about that. That's the moment. It's crazy. It's wild. A little foolishness, guys. Just a little foolishness in your leadership is so destructive. You have no idea how destructive it can be. And so here's the big idea today that I'm trying to press upon us all and I want us to learn together Beware. Please be beware. Foolish leadership is destructive. So therefore appoint wise leaders. Appoint wise leaders. Follow wise leaders. Do not follow foolish leaders. Become a wise leader. Become a wise leader. Now here's what I'll do. Here's what I'll say trying to unpack the proverbs that we read wise leaders do at least three things. I know they do more than this, and we could go, I could go for hours of all the ways that I I think what kind of character traits are found in wise leadership. But at a minimum, and 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 I think that these are particularly special in that we overlook them. We just overlook them. So, at least three things. They embrace vulnerability, they embrace rest and reflection, And lastly, they embrace uncertainty and curiosity. These things are so (laughs) overlooked. And I hope to somehow prove that it's like, oh yeah, they're like really important. And and yet we do the opposite all the time in leadership. So vulnerability, rest and reflection, uncertainty and curiosity. First, by vulnerability, um, I don't necessarily mean probably immediately what you're thinking. Like you're thinking, okay, they need to take risks and like sharing being more transparent. Well, like that that's probably a great quality, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Look at what he says in verse eight, because you're like, what in the world? How does this fit? Um, He says, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. And then he says this, he who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. He's essentially saying all the same things there. These are just little proverbs, right? Stating observable facts about what? life. Um, They just can't be denied, and they cannot be totally eradicated as much as you would like to. For them, in their context, maybe even somewhat today, depending on where you live in our country, snakes hide out in the middle of walls. Snakes hide out in the middle of walls. You want to break through, you might unexpectedly stumble upon one. Um, And if you're digging holes and cutting stones and you're cutting logs with an axe or a chisel whatever it is, sometimes there's a slip of the hand or a slip of the foot and you get hurt. No matter, listen, this is key, no matter who you are, it can just happen. So you're like, what is the point? Well, there's nothing profound about what he said. There's nothing magical, that's not a magical insight, and that's actually the point. It's common sense, and yet you ignore it. Um, So foolish, I think what he's getting at is foolish leaders live and lead as if they have found magical immunity from pain. They're entitled to it by nature of their position. By the nature of how wonderful they are, special, unique they are, whatever it is, and their circumstance or their name or their pedigree or their experience level, somehow now there is an immunity from a setback. And he would say, wrong. You're vulnerable just like everybody else. And the wise leader knows it. Um, It's like they've slipped, a foolish leader is someone who slipped into this view of their self. And I think unwittingly, like I, I think they, it happens unwittingly, and they don't know they're doing it. A foolish leader slips into this view of self that's not exactly arrogance per se, but you could make the argument that it is arrogance, but that's not the argument I'm trying to make. Um, it's like they've slipped into this view of self that their, their status, um, and like I said, their, 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 their talents, their dynam- they're so dynamic or whatever, or people have praised them so much, um, they have this kind of life where um, they're going to be the exception to the rule every time. They would acknowledge, yeah, I know there's a rule out there, but I'm the exception. They would never say it, but they live like it. I was reminded of this this week. It's Buzz Lightyear. Does anybody remember Buzz Lightyear and Toy Story 1? Like the very, the introduction of Buzz to the whole, you know, story of Toy Story, like do you remember what, what's happening? The di- like the dynamic going on, especially between him and Woody. Woody's like, "You're a toy," and Buzz. Buzz a <laughs> few guys are like, "I don't remember." <laughs> toy Story One. It's awesome. Go back and watch it, and it is exactly proving my point. Because Buzz Lightyear thinks he's what a space ranger, and so he's like shining his laser. You know. And he's calling star command or whatever. And he's like, why aren't they answering? And Buzz is like, or I mean, Woody is like, it's a blinking light, Buzz. You don't have wings that can actually fly. You don't have a laser beam. You're, you're a toy. And it isn't until like near the end of the, the, the arc of the story that Buzz sees the commercial of the, like all the other Buzz Light years. And he's like, I'm just a toy. The preacher is trying to say, hey, leaders, foolish leaders, think that somehow they're not human. (laughs) And he's like, but you are. You don't have laser beams, you know? You can't fly. The sooner you start to embrace the fact that you're a vulnerable human being like everybody else, the better for you and the better for everyone in your orbit. You see? That's what he's getting at. They can begin to think because um, it's, this is especially true, right? Especially true. I've been thinking about this all week. Because it's not like I wasn't studying this, thinking about myself all week long as someone who can be, fall victim to this in a leadership role. Uh, this is especially true when you do important things, good things, and spiritual things. See? It's even more true. Whether that's preaching, you know, pastoring, ministering, parenting. Like coaching, I don't know what your role of leadership is in your life, um, but people can begin to think that because of intention, desires, and like they're like really good intentions, they're well intentioned, great desires, aptitude, talent, like they're not vulnerable. Like that somehow they're not vulnerable to broken bodies in a broken world. Some leaders think that because they're talented and they have huge responsibilities, they can slip into this. I'm the exception, though, like I said earlier. Last month, when I, talk, talk, when I told you uh, that last month I was stung, the f- you know, the first time I was stung, last month, um, of the two times, the first time, you know what I was doing? I was on a prayer walk. No joke. Like, lifting y'all up, I was, Lord Jesus, bless the people of the Oaks, you know? And it was like, bam, on my foot. So it wasn't long, like, Things came out of my mouth, and then after those things came out of my mouth, I said, like, really, God? If any time I didn't deserve to be stung, it was this moment. Like, I was trying to bear my soul, commune with you, and and it's like, you know, full circle. It takes a whole month, and I get back into the text, and it's like, you're wonderful, Matt. You still get stung. I don't, did you think somehow there was an immunity from that because somehow you pray and you should, I don't know how you, you know, there's some way you can think and translate that into your own life. Um, a favorite story of mine in the Bible that illustrates this is, is Elijah. The, you know, there's this really awesome, cool prophet guy in the Old Testament. Maybe you're familiar with him. First Kings 18 and 19, you can read about it. This is like, he like gets God to rain down fire. He does this really cool stuff. Some people get killed. It's pretty bloody. Um, you might really think it's a fascinating story. It is a fascinating story. You should go back and read it. And so now Elijah's running from this crazy woman called Jezebel. He's running from his, for his life. He's scared to death. He's in a lot of danger. And he goes and hides out in a cave. Anybody remember this story? I love this story. It's one of my favorite leadership stories. Um, he's hiding out in this cave. And, and you know here, here he is. He, He's an incredibly important guy. He is. He is an an hugely important guy. And he's been been incredibly faithful. Um, But things are dangerous for him in this moment. And he starts having a pity party. He does. And I mean, I'm not, like, I get it. Things are bad. He's fearing for his life. That's not, I'm not trying to be like, suck it up, Elijah. No, it's just, he's having a pity party. He's hiding out in a cave. And he goes into this mode where he starts, you know, talking He's praying, um, and he's, he's, he thinks now, he has slipped into this mentality, like, I'm the only faithful one, God. They've all turned away, which technically isn't true, which God reveals later. It's like, no, there's like 7,000 people still being faithful. You're not the only one, bud. But like, he's like, I'm the only faithful one. And he's like, take my life. Like, he starts talking about suicide. Like, he's just so undone by it. Um, so you, he slips into being like bitter and angry and just overwhelmed. And it's so great because, you know, I could get into all of this, but it's like an angel of the Lord shows up and they're like, you need a nap. You need a, you need a, you need a snack and a nap. <laughs> like, and that, that's totally what happens. It's great because he, the, the, the God of the universe respects and values the fact that he's a human being. And it's like partly you're just tired. Take a nap and then we'll talk again. And then he gets up and he's like, you need another nap. <laughs> it's great, you should read it. Uh, but here's my, my point. Um, the foolish leader is one who, who lets entitlement creep into their life. They don't know it. They're, 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 what's happening in their head is they're like, I'm too important. My intentions are too pure to be vulnerable to accidents and setbacks. And then they get so surprised, they isolate themselves. Right here guilty, they isolate themselves, because I'm so pure, no one understands me, it's like, really, no one understands you, or they get bitter, they get so angry, they're so, so surprised, they're in bitter, they think Satan has somehow, and Satan's real, don't get me wrong, Um, But it's like the proverbial sting in their life from the bee is like Satan kicking the ladder out from underneath their feet. And it's like, is it Satan or is it just that there's bees? And you're a human being and you forgot that. The truth is, no matter who you are, no matter how important you are, and some of you are incredibly important, there's no such thing as an immunity to pain. The wise leader isn't just careful and thoughtful when in a potentially dangerous situation, whether that's a physical one or an emotional one, they're also humble enough to realize maybe I'm not so special that I'm somehow the exception to the rule. And so they're still able to serve. They're still able to cry and to share their pain with people. They're grounded. They have a sober view of themselves. Leadership, just in general, (laughs) is burdensome. Like there's no escaping that reality. Sooner or later, you get stung. Sooner or later, you get disappointed. You experience pain. It doesn't mean that God is mad at you. Um, None of that. It, It means that you're just a human being with limitations. You have limitations. I have limitations. Just like everybody else. And I think the lesson here is this, wise leaders who embrace this won't pretend to people around them that somehow they're not vulnerable to pain like everybody else. Please, do everyone in your orbit a favor. Stop trying to be a hero. Stop trying to do that, it's unhelpful. Two, they embrace rest and reflection. The wise leader embraces rest and reflection. The foolish leader might not lack urgency. You know what I mean? Sometimes foolish leaders have a ton of urgency, like a ton of passion, but they actually, and they they may not be aware of it. The people around them are sometimes usually aware of it, but they lack skill because they lack a patient approach. Uh, This is verse 10. He says, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. You you probably get the meaning of that. Uh, The foolish leader hates the patient stopping point to sharpen the blade. It just seems like a waste of time to him. You know, like this is gonna slow us down. I'd rather just go, 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 go to his own detriment and the detriment of everyone around him. See, he doesn't wanna stop to sharpen the blade, but he lacks wisdom to realize that not only is he wearing himself out, he's endangering himself and everyone around him. The foolish leader can have these big, grandiose goals, great goals, and they rush and push the boundaries of the mind and the body to the point of eventually, and this is the tragic irony, diminished returns. Diminished returns. The fool never considers how possibly more in less time actually is foolish. More in less time. And look, look, we're in the McDonaldization world. How fast can we get burgers and fries in your mouth? Faster, faster, faster. I'm not picking on McDonald's. It's just more of a way of life. And we do it in everything that we do. And we don't, the fool is the one who doesn't stop to think that kind of mentality, that kind of lifestyle, pushing the boundary of speed all the time a hurried pace, more, 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 actually, ironically, will not lead to the joy and the contentment you think you're after. It'll never get you there. It'll, get, it'll bring about the very opposite of it. That's the point of the proverb. The foolish leader doesn't stop to consider how their hurried pace threatens the dignity of everyone around them, including themselves. Hurried people strip people's dignity around them, all the time. Yep, You know what, I'm so, you know what I mean? I like guess the boss that's always in a hurry is somehow robbing you of dignity. Because to maintain somebody's dignity, whether it's an employee, a student, a child, like in your care, to maintain, to uphold someone's dignity means to slow down and be patient and to listen seems like a waste of time <laughs> we just don't say those things the leader doesn't say those things in their head they just do it they just live that way because they have a goal it's all about getting to the goal example in my own life i've learned that rest and reflection from preaching like the, like some of the time i just took is tied directly tied to my ability to preach gently and peacefully, see, Um, because if I'm going at an, an incredible pace, I can still get into the pulpit and preach Jesus urgently, but what can happen is over time, secretly underneath, I can still have an ax to grind, and so what comes out, or the some of the things that end up slipping out or coming out or my posture, like in terms of how people experience my presence, is angry. You know, every Anybody who's been in church long enough it knows what it feels like to be under the preaching or the teaching or the care of an angry minister, right? It's like the angry, drunk dad or uncle that's just yelling at you to do better. And part of it is like he's just, not wise enough to understand he should stop, sit still, and rest. Gentleness, love, patience, these things that we are called to are predicated on a, on a particular pace, and that pace usually is sm- slower. Stop being so hurried. The wise leader knows that. You know, uh, very often in the New Testament, you see Jesus putting the mission on what felt like at the time for uh, his disciples, like on hold, right? So he could sneak away to pray or, or just stop and eat or, or sleep. Um, he would kind of venture off into the hills, you know, into the wilderness to, to, to pray for like many, many hours at times. Um, and he would do this, and it very much felt like an intentional, like we're not gonna produce and we're not gonna achieve anything right now. And what's interesting about that, you get the feeling when you read the stories Of the new testament you get the feeling that um it was very often misunderstood but also sometimes it was infuriating i think to his followers because this wasn't proper a prop like they didn't have this kind of vision for leadership where's the urgency man people are lost like israel is in a bad place you're wasting time and it made it made them mad And we, I think, are are, are no different. We we lack a vision for like what the proper pace of leadership should look like. There is a pattern, you've probably witnessed it, there's a pattern of burnout and blowing up life, their life in leadership right now, whether you're talking about pastors or or politicians or um, my wife, my wife works in the public education system. I mean, I hear a story every night at dinner. It's great. <laughs> it's like just con- it's like pe- leaders burn out. They they flame out. They they or they just get incredibly bored. I mean, they just all these things happen because I think it's all rooted in this. Um, or they leaders just live with this edginess to them. And they don't necessarily blow up their life. They just live this edginess, like they might snap on someone the second you say the wrong thing. So be careful. Walk on eggshells around them. You ever, been, ever had that kind of leader in your life? And it's all because they just refuse intentional rest. And, and this is key, by the way. Intentional rest. The wise, the wise leader didn't just stop swinging the ax. They stopped swinging the ax and sharpened it. So I'm not talking about rest where it's like, okay, I'm not gonna press into achievement and accomplish anything right now. I'm just gonna Netflix. Like, and I'm not against Netflix. I watch Netflix. I'm, not, I'm just saying like there's, a, there, there's an aspect to wise leadership where you stop producing and you purposely sit still to press into something else. And in this case, God. There, there is this... Intentionality. I call this, you guys that come here, you know this. I call this a Sabbath way of life. Sabbath way of life. Taking moments during your day to intentionally stop producing, going as far as taking maybe a whole day to stop, and then waste time with God. And of course, that is never a waste of time. But I am telling you, nothing, nothing is more valuable, spiritual, and holy as wasting time with God. And the fascinating thing about it is, we don't want to do it. It's one of the hardest spiritual rhythms that we have. My six-year-old has started this, the all-too-familiar phase that we all go through, of "I'm bored. There's nothing to do." You know that face? Um, I'm baffled every time the statement comes out of her mouth. Like you know, it's like we're swimming in toys right, you know, and it's like, I'm bored, and, and I, you know, I get frustrated um, when I hear this sentiment, the more distance I get from forgetting the fact of who I once was, because I used to do the same thing. Matter of fact, I probably still do it in a different form. When I'm at my best with her, I listen uh, with sensitivity to the complaint, and then I gently but firmly encourage the boredom because I'm starting to understand, finally, in my life, I'm starting to understand the value of boredom in this particular culture, with a, particularly with a, with a culture of people that are highly educated or, 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 or highly, highly motivated to achieve. And what is amazing, when I watch my daughter in this particular moment, is eventually, it doesn't take that long, but eventually she ends up um, when I encourage this kind of stillness and boredom, she ends up, I can see, usually see her out the kitchen window into the backyard, and all of these imaginative conversations with her toys and stuff, just walking around the backyard having conversations. And every time I see it, I can't help but think, wow, this is the pattern of not only Christian leadership, but life in general. We paradoxically long for rest, and we paradoxically long for insight like the insights and the secret like, that comes from time with God. Like we just want God to speak with, to us so bad, but we can't bear the boredom of sitting still long enough to ever get it. You know? There's just too much to be achieved. There's too much to accomplish. There's too much fun out there if you're one of those people. And there's just so little time. But... If we did, and we did more often, we'd be surprised, just like my kid, we'd be surprised at what conversations get generated between you and God. You would be so surprised. You'd be surprised at how wise you become. And you know the irony, and I could go on, and I do not have, wow, the time, um, (laughs) is you are communing with the one that is outside of time and orders it, you ever thought about that? Like you're, you're, you're wasting time to be with the one who created time and he can do whatever he wants with you in the kind of time that you have with your life. It's like this amazing cheat card. We can be with the one who created time, who exists outside of it, and then he can have you re-enter in a whole new way. It's, um, I could go on and on and on about the value of doing that cultivating a Sabbath rhythm in your life. But I gotta move. So lastly, this. Wise leaders embrace uncertainty and curiosity. Look at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win in favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. No man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The Bible's wisdom literature has this consistent way of contrasting the fool. In um, the wise person, um, there's this, the fool is a talker and the wise person is one who holds back. That's consistent in the wisdom literature of the scripture. Now here's the thing, like for instance, I'll give you an example. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. Just Bleh. It's just like they, t- they type things they shouldn't. They say things they shouldn't. That's the fool. It's like they think it, it gets out there. The wise, and, in contrast, is holds back holds back, thinks it through, meditates, prays before they speak, before they type. Now here's the thing. It's not that the Bible thinks that talking is bad. Like somehow because you're a chatty Kathy, I don't always say that. I'm sorry, Kathies. Like is not, you know, but the, 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 um, the Bible doesn't see that somehow like the fool is just someone who is just so extroverted and likes to talk a lot. No, 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 that's not the Bible's point. Um, when you put it all the... the Text together and you do like a word study of it, the Bible sees the fool as someone who operates out of assumption all the time. They live, they love to assume. That's the fool. They, they think that they can, can control the outcome all the time, or they know the outcome. They're the know-it-alls. They never give time to stop and go, I am steeped in uncertainty, right? Like the fool is Job's friends. They're fools. They, all, they think they know what's going on. And, and God's like, you have no idea, and I'm gonna make him sacrifice for you because you're, ni- you're idiots. The fool is one who just always operates out of assumption. The foolish leader is one who makes comments more than they ask questions. They, they like ordering and declaring self-assured facts more than they like curiosity. The foolish leader refuses to remember how unpredictable life and its outcomes are. Truth, right, is not measured in mass appeal. It's not. Um, and you never fully arrive at a place of knowing all and predicting all. Like, as humans, we're just steeped in mystery. Like, friends, we're we're closing up almost the book of Ecclesiastes, and you could say this, to be human is to be steeped in uncertainty. That's kind of one of the major points of the entire book. Like, and and the wise person knows that. Uh, The humility needed to change your mind Uh, The humility needed to evolve as things and more information comes in. That is a slow process and it is a slow process that the fool never, ever wants to engage in. The foolish leader lacks the patience for more questions and then they operate out of the very first thing that they hear. That's enough for me. That's the fool. That's that's how you put all of these proverbs together. Whereas the wise sits back, asks another counselor. They just keep, taking in information, taking the time, whatever time is needed. If not, it's not that they don't uh, lack time for questions. They just prefer, the, fool, the foolish leader prefers um, the safety, I think, the safety you could say of managing and controlling and clinging to certain narratives of the world around them rather than submitting to the process of learning and the struggle because it is a struggle and it's painful to struggle through days and days of uncertainty. And so the fool would rather just manage and control the narratives because they think that that's easier. Well, and it is easier, but then people get hurt. Not knowing makes this kind of leader uncomfortable. That's the point, right? Because they're thinking, what will people think? I don't know the answer. Therefore, I must just spew something out. What will be the outcome of my family or my friends or my coworkers? What will be the outcome if I actually say, I don't know? Can you imagine that? I need more time. And so the discomfort gives way to rushing um, and a kind of manufactured confidence, which by the way, I do this, this is me. I come off to some, maybe not to you, but to many, I come off as a confident individual. And when actually underneath and I've taken plenty of personality assessments that attest to this, underneath, my, what's happening in my heart and in my head doesn't match my posture. Like underneath, I'm like uncertain and I'm insecure and I'm struggling to know what is the right answer. And I think, as I've spent a lot of time on this, I think early on as a kid, there's a pattern I learned and, and that's the pattern of this. I, I think that I learned that when I felt inadequate as a kid, like I felt like I was the dumbest one in the room or something like that, I thought the the easiest way to escape that moment was to manufacture calm and confidence. It's like you could trick and fool people with it. And so um, I just thought what people wanted to see, I don't know how I generated this idea, but I think what happened was I generated this idea in my head that what people want to see is somebody who's comfortable in themselves and can manage themselves, remains calm, and has an answer. That's what keeps you out of trouble or keeps you from being mocked. And now, so it's now, it's like, for me, it's like a knee jerk. Like, I don't even notice when I'm doing it. And it takes a lot of work to, it's a lot of work for me now to stop and recognize I'm actually uncertain and I need to share it and, and suffer the consequences, you know, of someone that wishes or that I had the answers. It's just so ingrained on in me. Now, I'd love for us to keep all three of these in our minds, and and we probably won't. Maybe one will stick out to you, and that's great. Um, But all I would say is this in summary. The wise leader embraces the fact that they are human-sized. I think I probably have said that before at some point in this series. But the wise leader just embraces that they are human-sized. No bigger than human, um, certainly not less than human. And that's just the thing. As I close up here, look, we are tempted to follow. We are tempted to worship. We are certainly tempted to appoint and to strive to be leaders that are more than human, and we should own that. We love heroes. We want to be heroes. It's no mystery that, like those Avenger movies, are the biggest selling movies. We love heroes. We want to be them, and we want to be impressive. We we love to we love Flash. We want leaders who are flashy. You want to be flashy. We hate being ordinary, and we hate our limitations. So, one part of the horrible thing about all this is we look for people who seem to defy them, and we put them in leadership. That's what we do. And then, we are so shocked when they disappoint us, because they all of a sudden show chink in their armor, whatever. We watch the Olympics and we think, what have I done with my life? (laughs) In all seriousness, it's why we love leaders who push human boundaries. We love leaders that do that and we just eat it up and we just give them promotions. You know? It's why we heap heavy burdens and unrealistic expectations on leaders. Because underneath, we want them to be superhuman, not someone who falls in ditches and gets stung by bees. And this is the key. Listen, please. I'm, I'm, I'm almost done here, but this is the key. You put heavy burdens and expectations and heavy yokes on yourself. Huge ones. And you put vocational burdens on you, you put family burdens on you, and you definitely put spiritual burdens on you. You do, on yourself. And if you've been listening to any of this and you've been thinking, well, this seems like a lecture for leaders, and I'm not a leader. Wrong, wrong. Like, it's likely not true because we're leaders in the workplace, yes. We're leaders in our homes with our families. We're, We're leaders in our churches. We're leaders in our schools. We're leaders with our friends. Most of us carry some form of leadership and influence. All I would tell you is that the way we recover our humanity and the way out of this business of putting heavy yokes on ourselves is submit to the easy light yoke of Jesus. If you will submit and give everything you've got to following him closely, this is how you actually recover your humanity. This is how you become someone that embraces vulnerability, that slows down, that actually becomes intentional in your life. How fitting is it that Jesus' famous invitation is the exact opposite of the Rehoboam story earlier, right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I cannot explain to us easily, but Jesus has this incredibly high sacrificial kind of life he wants from us. He wants us to serve people. But in all the risks and all that service and all that sacrifices, in some way, and it's I don't understand it, it brings healing and joy. I'm not gonna explain it. I just know that it does because he's our Lord, he loves us, and he became limited himself. He got calluses, he got tired, and he willingly took on pain to heal us. Please, if you don't know anything else, know that much. And so as we come to communion, let us remember that. That, man, I, I, wanna, I don't wanna just want to believe in Jesus, but I want to submit and following, become a learner, and learn everything I can about the Jesus way of doing life. Because if not, the people in my orbit suffer and I suffer. Jesus has called us to that much for sure. So this bread represents part of that communion. This cup represents some of that. On the night Jesus uh, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. And he took the cup of wine and he, after dinner and he said, this is my, the cup of the new covenant, right? And my blood and it's shed for you. So what we're doing when we come forward and take part in communion is we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're celebrating, remembering the Lord's death. We're remembering the one who gives us a light and easy burden, a light and easy yoke. If you're a Christian, you're invited to come up to this station or this station to take a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine and the juice, whichever one you prefer, and celebrate. If you're not a Christian, sit back, watch, take it in, learn, ask questions, those sorts of things. There's also the little cups if you prefer the little cups as opposed to taking from the corporate loaf. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and we thank you for this time. May we all grow in our own leadership May we submit and surrender to you and the work you have. Your steadfast love never ceases, Lord. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We love you very much. We are so very thankful. It's in-